How will the world see Christ? Have you thought about that? How does the world get a clear, accurate picture of Jesus Christ? There was an elderly man who was bedridden uh, with a terminally, uh, terminal illness, and he had one wish before he died. He, he wanted to see the Rocky Mountains, right? But since he couldn't travel, he did the next best thing. He, he hired a, a number of painters, of artists, to go out to the Rockies and try to capture the, the beauty of the mountains. And so each painter went and attempted to, to capture it from a different angle. So one may have uh, captured the, the beauty of a, of a lake surrounded by the mountains. Another, the, the flowers across the mountain meadows. And another focused on the, the snow-covered peaks of the Rockies. And as they finished, each artist came back and brought it to the man. And from his bed, he, he surveyed and looked at the, the collection he had now of, of paintings of the Rockies. And while each artist, or individually, they did not capture the beauty of the Rockies on their own, together as a whole, he felt that he had seen the Rockies. So I share this story, which, which is from a recent article by Tim Challies. Um, so I share it, not, not because it's a perfect analogy, but because I think it gets at an important point from our text this morning. In order for the world to see Christ in his myriad of perfections, they need to see not just an individual Christian, but Christ's body, his church. And so just as each artist was unable to capture that in its entirety uh, individually, as a whole, they were able to fulfill the commission from this man. And so too, in a similar way, uh, we are unable to fulfill the commission, to fulfill our responsibility as individuals. But quite frankly, it's because it hasn't been given to us as individuals. It's been given to the church. It's been given to us as a whole. And so for these 10 weeks, we've been considering what it means to be the church, to be the household of God. And this morning, we, we come to a, a well-known passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And we will now consider uh, the third part of the function of the church. So let's look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the table. Feel free to, to grab one. Feel free to take it home. Um, let's turn together. Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20 just for a, a bit of context. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us again briefly. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I am very aware of, of my need 
for your spirit to act. I pray through your word, you would shape and mold us more into the image of your son. Would you give us a dependence on you to act? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning for your glory? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I would imagine that this is a familiar passage for most. You've probably heard it preached. I would imagine you've probably heard it preached at a missions conference or when a missionary comes off the field or maybe with a focus on individual evangelism. And I would affirm all of those, all good things. And this passage should rightly motivate our heart for the lost and for the nations. My concern is that it's often preached solely focused on our responsibilities as individuals without any mention of of the church. And so in our time together this morning, I want to make the case that the church is the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. The church is the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. And I think this passage points to that by highlighting uh, three truths. Jesus gives the church his power, Jesus gives the church his plan, and Jesus gives the church his presence. So his power, his plan, and his presence. Let's start with uh, Jesus' power. Look again at verse 18. It says, And Jesus came to them, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So before we consider this authority, remember the context. The last time that Jesus' disciples saw him, they were witnessing his death. He was being killed. And now here they are seeing their Lord, their their master, risen from the dead, alive before their eyes. Humanly speaking, I think you can see that there would be pure joy. But at the same time, there may be some lingering questions, some hesitations. He's alive before their eyes. And, and you see this in verse 17 when it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so it's amid the disciples' fear. It's amid their hesitation. It's amid their doubt that Jesus declares all authority is his. He's been given sovereign control over the entirety of his creation. Not one inch of the universe in heaven or on earth is outside of his power or control. So you can imagine on a sunny morning, the beams of sunlight coming through the window, you can see all the dust particles moving around. Every movement of every particle is under his control. Or consider all the snow that we've had. As each snowflake falls, God has shaped every individual snowflake And it lands exactly where he intends. Jesus has all authority, all power. And while this is an obvious statement, it's worth stating. Jesus' declaration here necessarily requires him to be alive. This declaration of all authority is true because he's alive. We have a risen Savior, and his universal authority is now realized or or demonstrated by his resurrection. He was dead, and now he's alive. The Lord has exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And his authority, it's not only the right to rule, it's, it's the ability to rule. He's all-powerful and worthy of all authority because he conquered death in his resurrection and thereby completed the mission from the Father. So it's his resurrection that demonstrates his universal authority and exalts him to a position of absolute rule. So I think we have to ask why. Why was Jesus given all authority? Daniel 7.14 states, And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So do you see, he, he was given dominion or rule so that, so that all peoples and nations should serve him. And we see it, it's similar in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in, Revel, uh, in, in John 17. He says, since you have given him, that is the, the son, Jesus, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. His authority enables him to secure the salvation of his people. So how does he exercise this authority? We've seen that it's been given. How does he exercise it? It's through the church. He exercises authority through the church. Look at verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples. He's saying, because all authority has been given to me, therefore, church, go and make disciples. It is his authority. It's the truth of who Jesus is that's the basis of our command. It's based on who Jesus is. The who precedes the what. And so we take up the Great Commission because of Jesus' absolute authority. We take up the Great Commission by Jesus' absolute authority. And we take up the Great Commission in Jesus' absolute authority. And so because of that, the Great Commission will not, be put, will not put us on display. It will rather rightly demonstrate the power of Jesus. I think that helps us see that what makes this the, the Great Commission, it, it's not the greatness of the task. It's not the greatness of us. It's the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes it great. What, what should that produce in us? The, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, what, what should that produce? It, it should produce a, a deep and abiding confidence as we take up the Great Commission. Brothers and sisters here, have confidence because Jesus Christ is risen and has all authority. Listen to the way uh, Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He says that you may know, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul makes the clear connection between the raising of Jesus and his subsequent exaltation to his position of rule, to his position of power, to his position of authority over all things, including his church. And it's because of this very authority as the head of the church that we have confidence that he will build his church. Not only will he build his church, but he now exercises authority through the church. It's, it's his church. And we saw these truths in, in Ben's sermon uh, from Matthew 16 a few weeks ago. Jesus, Jesus explicitly promises that he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, so consider how this argument in Matthew 28, in, in a sense, re-articulates the argument from Matthew 16. So Matthew 28, the fact that Jesus has been given all authority, therefore, because of that authority, we are to go. We are to make disciples. This gets at the very idea of, of Matthew 16, where you see the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, right? In other words, he, he has authority. And that's followed by the prom- promise that he will build his church. And because it's his church, we have confidence that he will accomplish his purposes for it. And the way he accomplishes purposes for it is by exercising his authority through it. We see Jesus authorizing the church to act on his behalf by giving it the keys of the kingdom, right? Which necessarily implies that Jesus has the authority to give the keys. And so while on earth, Jesus spoke on behalf of heaven, and now he has authorized the church to do the very same thing. So following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you, you cannot separate the authority or the power of Jesus from the church. Furthermore, the church is the clearest demonstration of his authority. And so one of the primary ways the church demonstrates demonstrates this authority is by being obedient to Jesus' plan. Uh, We've seen briefly uh, that, that Jesus supplies his power to the church, that he works through the church by his power, and now we'll see that it's through his power that the church is, is uniquely qualified, uniquely set apart to fulfill his plan. So we have to ask, what is, what is that plan? What is the plan that we see from Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Look again with me at verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So so the plan is quite simply to to make disciples. The church is commissioned to make disciples, to make followers, to make those who obey and imitate Jesus in, in all his commands. Then in turn, they make those who obey and imitate Jesus, and so on. And so it's the church that's authorized and given responsibility to take up the Great Commission. This is at the very heart 
of God's redemptive plan. It's, it's at the very heart of all of Scripture. So for, for us, in our home, often after dinner, uh, we'll spend a short time reading a passage and, and singing a few songs together. And, and during this time, I've tried to, to make it a regular practice of uh, being very clear about the plan of God. What is God's plan? How does he work that out through Scripture? And so I, I won't put the boys on the spot right now, um, but in our home, I, I regularly ask them, how many storylines are there in Scripture? And they respond, there, there's one storyline in Scripture. Great, w- what is that storyline? And they answer, generally, in this way, God is redeeming a people for himself, through his son Jesus, for his glory. God is redeeming a people for himself, through his son Jesus, for his glory. And no, I know I, I, you could add more to that. You, you could add some, some meat to that, right? But, but at the heart of God's plan is the redemption of a people for his namesake, for his glory. At the very heart of God's plan. And so the Great Commission is reiterating the plan of God from the beginning. It's the climactic fulfillment of God's eternal plan. It is his plan A. It's not a backup. It's not an afterthought. This is God's plan. Have you ever made a plan for something and it doesn't go exactly as you planned or hoped or intended? And so you have to do something else. You have to come up with another way to to fix it. So for me, this regularly happens with projects around the house. Just about every time. Um, and it probably will not be breaking news for, for those that know me. I'm not the most handy. Uh, I'm willing to try, but inevitably, my mistake comes. And now I have to scramble to, to minimize the, the visible damage. Right? I have to come up with a different plan, a plan B. For me, sometimes it entails a plan C, a plan D. This is not the way it is for God. He accomplishes all his purposes. He has a plan. He fulfills it. One plan perfectly carried out. Let me briefly try to show you what I mean, because I, I think it will be helpful uh, as we consider the Great Commission to see that it's, it's not an afterthought. It, it's not a plan B. Consider um, Adam and Eve, the, the creation the creation account, and consider the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. At the heart of this command is to fill the earth with worshipers of God, right, with, with, with a people of God. That's at the heart of that command. Jump forward to Genesis 12. You consider the covenant God made with Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's initial covenant and establishment of his people Israel included his blessing reaching to all the families of the earth. Or as Ben read for us from from Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. God's plan has always been for salvation to extend to the ends of the earth. 
to redeem a people from all nations. And not only has God ordained that salvation extend to the ends of the earth, he's ordained the very means by which that will happen. Namely, in his son Jesus, through the church. Turn with me to to, to Ephesians 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. Ephesians 3. Paul states in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how is God accomplishing his plan? It's through the church. And this was according to his eternal purpose, now realized in Jesus Christ. So I said that the Great Commission is a reiterating of the plan of God from the beginning. right? And, th- and that's true. You see it in God's creation purposes. But not only is it a reiterating of his plan, it- it's the manifestation of his eternal plan. The church is the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. This will be done as the church displays its dependence on the power of Jesus through obedience in making disciples. So that brings us to to the question of how. how. How do we do it? How do we make disciples? Look again at verses 19 to 20. I know we've read it multiple times and we're just going to keep reading it. Um, Verses 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are to make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. As you think about each of those, do you see how the plan itself, the plan of making disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching, do you see how that necessarily assumes the church? How do we make disciples? We proclaim the truth. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's function number one. Ben talked about that back in in January from 1 Timothy. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And what truth specifically? What, What truth is the church holding forward? Luke records it this way with Jesus' final words. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So so the message of forgiveness of sin found only in the name of Jesus is the message to be proclaimed. And we proclaim it universally. And we proclaim it universally for two reasons. 
Jesus' authority is universal. So he's got claim on everything, everywhere, everyone. And secondly, the problem of sin is universal. Sin is everywhere in everyone. So, so there is no more relevant message today than the hope found in the name of Jesus. There is no person or nation that is not in need of forgiveness of their sin against a holy God. All people everywhere have rebelled against God and will, will remain under his wrath apart from turning from their rebellion, apart from turning from their sin and in turn trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you've never done that this morning, if you've never placed your faith, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as your substitute, as your payment for sin, I would urge you, do that today. Stop trusting in your own ability. Stop trusting in your own ability to to make things right before God. You can't. You can't. Place your hope in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Cry out for the mercy of God found only in Jesus. And so it's, it's that truth, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he's done to redeem a people that we proclaim to make disciples. And so we also make disciples by going. How do we go? Who, who does the sending? John 20, 21 says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As we've already seen, Jesus exercises his authority through the church. And so it's by the power of Jesus that the church is the one that sends. We're all going through, through Acts, where most of us are going through Acts in, in our life groups. Um, but you can trace this throughout the, the book. But just consider one example from Acts 13. The church of Antioch. Uh, Having set apart Barnabas and Paul, the church then fasts, the church prays, the church lays hands on, and then sends them out. So it's, it's the church that's doing the sending. It's the church that's going. And they are sent out with the task of proclaiming the gospel, of calling all to repentance. And for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, they are then to be baptized. So who has the authority to baptize? Everyone together? It's the church, right? No surprise there. It's the church. The church has the authority to baptize. We saw that from Acts 2 uh, just a couple weeks ago. And what are they baptized into? They're baptized into union with God and union with God's people. They're baptized into the church. Verse 19 states, baptizing them in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is inclusive of all who would repent and believe, but it's exclusively in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It does not say the names. It's it's the name. One God. This speaks to the deity of Christ. And so therefore, lines are drawn around the people of God as those who profess faith in the one true God. And as these individuals unite around their common confession in Christ, local churches are formed. The last part of making disciples is teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So again, to whom did Jesus give teachers and pastors for the equipping of the saints? He gave them to the church. The regular gathering of God's people to sing together, sit under the preaching of God's word together, to pray together, to practice the ordinances. These are the primary ways God has ordained for his people to learn and obey all that he's commanded. So do you, do you see in that plan of making disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching, do you see how Jesus has uniquely purposed the church to fulfill the Great Commission? Do you see that? Do you see the weight and the significance of what we do on a Sunday morning? You cannot separate the church from the Great Commission. You cannot separate the church from God's mission, from his plan. The church is the very means and fulfillment of his plan. And so it's because of that truth that our desire is, is not to, to simply see deci- decisions made. Our desire is to see disciples formed and shaped into the image of Jesus in the context of the local church. That's the normal pattern we see throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> right? the, the gospel is proclaimed. Those who receive it and, believed and believe are, are then baptized into membership of a local body of believers, and then sit under the faithful teaching of God's word. Then as they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will go and make disciples. Who will make disciples? Who will make disciples? And so on. Sounds very familiar to to be fruitful and multiply, doesn't it? Again, going back to the very purposes of God in creation. And yet Adam failed. Adam failed, but God's plan did not. God's plan continued uninterrupted and continues uninterrupted as we see the second Adam, Jesus Christ, unite a people to himself with the command to make disciples or to be fruitful and multiply. And because of his power, because of his plan, because of his presence, we see that that will perfectly be fulfilled. That will be accomplished. So I said at the beginning, my goal was to show, uh, or maybe for some to convince you, uh, that the church is the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. L- let me add one layer to that to make it even more clear of, of what I'm trying to get at. Churches planting churches are the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. Churches planting churches are the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. We here at Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, we're, we're a testimony to the Lord continuing to build his church through the faithfulness of another local church, Joy Community Fellowship of Pittman. Th- that is cause for rejoicing for us here today. This is a testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. And so, Lord willing, as we have opportunity to support and to send our own members to the nations or to other parts of the state or other parts of the country, It's with the intent and the goal of seeing churches planted or built up. 
So churches, planting churches, are the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. And we want to be a church that plants churches. That's a reason we're partnered with Acts 29, a church planting network. Our desire is to be faithful to the Great Commission, and we see the planting of churches locally and globally as the primary means by which we can do that. So if that's true, if you're tracking with me and you say, all right, that, I, I see that. Church is planting church, their primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission. It, it should necessarily have an impact on your lives. It should impact where we decide to live. It should impact how we're involved with our community. It should impact the relationships we try to develop with neighbors. It should impact how we spend our finances. It should impact what activities our kids are involved in. It should impact our commitment to this body, to one another. Our desire to see disciples made of Jesus, and even more than that, the command to go and make disciples, should cause us to be intentional in putting ourselves in positions where we have opportunity to share the gospel with unbelievers. We should be intentional to put ourselves in positions to have opportunity to share the gospel. So that brings me to the final point. Jesus promises the church his presence. Verse 20 ends with these words, And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with them for all their days, for all time. We have seen all authority, all nations, all his commands, and now we see all the time. As one pastor put it, these verses provide us with a grace sandwich. Right? We have confidence provided in Jesus' authority, and then the middle, the, the meat of that sandwich, if you will, is the commission to go and make disciples. And lastly, the assurance and comfort of his presence for all time. So you have confidence and assurance. Confidence and comfort with the, the command to go. As another author put it, the final look, or, or behold, the final look of a look-filled gospel directs disciples not to one more command, but to one final definitive assurance. So for those trusting in Christ this morning, in, in these last few minutes, my prayer is that you would find great confidence and comfort in knowing and experiencing Jesus' presence. Jesus, our friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus, our shepherd who promises to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, our helper who removes all fear. Take comfort in this Jesus. Have confidence in this Jesus. And while we wait for Jesus' return, how is, how is his presence manifest to us? How, how do we feel it or see it? I'll give you two ways. The, the first is through the Holy Spirit. John records Jesus saying, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then again in Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we have the Holy Spirit not only with us, but in us. And so the first way we see Jesus' presence is, is the promised giving of the Holy Spirit. The second way we see the presence of Jesus is, is through his authority, specifically through the authority that he's given the church. Consider Matthew 18, 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is primarily speaking of his authority being present among them. Where two or three are gathered, there his presence is among them. And I think Matthew makes the same connection here in 28. Jesus' authority and presence go hand in hand as he commissions his disciples to go and make disciples. In other words, where Jesus has authority, there he is. Where Jesus is, there he has authority. You can't separate the two. And so his presence and authority should produce in us greater degrees of confidence, greater degrees of comfort. Think about a child who's trying something for the first time. Generally, what's one of the first questions they ask their parents? Will you be with me? Are, are you going to? And for the child, everything's okay as long as the parent goes. All will be okay if the parent's with them. They have confidence. Their fears are, are eased. It's no different for us. The Lord knows that. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're timid. He knows that we're fearful. He knows that we doubt. He knows that we question. And so what does he do? He, he graciously wraps his command to us with a declaration of his absolute authority and a promise of his forever presence. What grace in how he gives us his command. A declaration of his absolute authority and a promise of his forever presence. So brothers and sisters, wherever you go, whoever you may face, there's no reason to fear because you go with the authority. You go with the presence of the risen Son of God. You can boldly proclaim his gospel. It's his message. You're not responsible to come up with the message. You're responsible to proclaim his message, to be his ambassador. And so as you have opportunity to share the gospel with coworkers, neighbors, family members, you can trust that the message of the gospel will accomplish exactly what Jesus intends. You can also have peace that by the Holy Spirit, you'll have the words to say. So as we come to a close, I hope that you're convinced and encouraged that the church is the primary means God uses to fulfill the Great Commission through Jesus' power, his plan, and presence. And one final thought, at the same time that we, um, we know that to be true, we still await final consummation, right? We still await the final fulfillment of the Great Commission. So what does all that look like in the end? The making of disciples, the churches planning ch churches. What does all that look like? I'm going to kind of tease this because Lord, Lord willing, Ben's going to preach on that next week. Um, so I'm not going to answer it in its entirety. Just going to give you a glimpse or a taste of our future reality just as a way to, to motivate or to spur you on in your love for the church, 
and your understanding of God's plan for the church. Listen to John's vision in Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be encouraged in that in this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you for your, your word. Lord, I pray that any words that were spoken, that were faithful to your word, to your purposes, I pray that you would use those by your spirit to grow this church in their love for you, love for the lost, love for your people. Would you grow us as a church to that end? Would you give us greater hope in your power, in your plan, in your presence as we go? Would you give us great comfort and confidence in that for your glory, for your honor? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.